All right, so this morning we want to ask you, you know, what's, what's the place where you are most tempted to disobey? I think for some of us uh, who were around, uh, impacts our willingness, our heart, our desire uh, to do what we've been asked to do. Uh, I can think back to uh, my sophomore year. I can tell you where I was at Lincoln High School in speech class. And I was surrounded by like three class clowns that I just thought were so hilarious. Even my teacher, Dr. McKee, who was our, our speech teacher, would talk with us again and again and again, like, hey, when someone is up here speaking, like you're not supposed to laugh, don't mess around, don't fiddle in your desks and like the, the whole deal. And I have to be honest and say that there were some days where I had speech class inside of the classroom, and some days I had speech class outside of the classroom. What's really awkward is within this last year, uh, my friend Richie and I were at, at Qdoba eating lunch, and or supper actually, and who is in line right in front of us but Dr. McKee. And so we had this like short interaction. He's like, hey, what are you doing now? And I was like, oh, dang it. <laughs> And I told him, and he was like, good for you. That's, let me translate that for you. That means, wow, I'm surprised. So <laughs> that's just something. I don't know about you, but I also have a hard time obeying at the pool. Uh, there's just like all of these rules that I'm not sure make like logical sense. Like one thing I get in trouble with at the, at the pool is like throwing my kids in the water. They don't want you to do that. So you have to be, you know, a certain height to do this, and you have to be careful how you walking this, all of that stuff. And I have to tell you, like, my heart just really isn't in all of the rules they have at the pool. Like it's, I'm, I'm just, they don't really have my heart. Like, I will do it, but I'm just not super committed to it. I don't know about the rest of you, but driving, I kind of go, I ebbs and flows with how I obey the rules when I'm driving. Because again, like... I'm a safe driver. This seems like a suggestion. Like, I just kind of, like, do my best. And we're in the middle of this series called Kings and Kingdoms. And we're talking about obedience. We're talking about faithfulness. We're talking about disobedience. And it's an important conversation because we need to make sure that as the people of God, not just we are obedient, being obedient blindly, but like that God has our heart. Like it's not just about following all of the rules, but it's about our, our heart not belonging to this world, but belonging to Jesus. Because I can tell you that there's a lot of us in this room who grew up in the context of a faith community that kind of had a lot of rules. And we, some of us got really good at the rules, but the rules never captured our hearts. So how many of you know that transformation is not possible without the heart? It has to begin here because it's only going to last so long. And so we've been introduced to King Saul, and he's this person that started out with a rise. The people of Israel want a king. And so God's like, okay, I will give you a king. Let me introduce you to this guy named Saul. And as we talked about last week, he, he rescues the nation of Israel from these people who are attacking the nation of Israel. But 
then he disobeys. And he's going to show us that's the major thing on his resume. All of us have different things on our resume. The things that we have done in life, our accomplishments. But the thing on Saul's resume is that he just does stuff his own way in his own time at his own speed. And we talked about last week, there's a map that Bill's going to put up on the screen for us because I forgot my laser pointer at home. Are you so disappointed? I got here this morning and I was like, oh, dang it, my laser pointer. So Bill is taking care of that for us. I know no one's sad, but thank you for that very compassionate (laughs) sigh. People are like, this guy's crazy. So we looked at this last week and this is all the kingdom of Saul. It's a large, expansive kingdom that includes a lot of people. And how important is it that that God has Saul's heart? Because look at all of these people that are impacted by Saul's disobedience. And so I think it's important for us to remember the power of relationships. Like, Like we have a great power to sow blessing into the lives of others, but we also have great power to do significant harm in the lives of others. And this picture just kind of shows that. All of the families, all of the children, all of the people who are impacted by this king. So we want to read this morning in 1 Samuel 15. We're going to read 13 to 28. Last week we looked at this story where Samuel tells Saul, hey, I need you to go to Gilgal. I need you to wait for me seven days. I'm going to be there. We're going to have this worship service together. We're going to offer sacrifices to the Lord. But Saul doesn't wait for Samuel. Saul does things in his own speed, at his own time, and in his own way. And so before Samuel can get there, he starts the worship service early. And he disobeys the Lord, and he's going to lose the crown. He's going to lose his authority. He's going to lose his place, his position. Not because he did something once, but because he has a rhythm of disobeying. And we're going to see that today too. So 1 Samuel chapter 15, the heading in my Bible says, The Lord rejects Saul as king. Beginning in verse 13, When Samuel reached him, Saul said, The Lord bless you. I have carried out the Lord's instructions. But Samuel said, what then is this bleeding of sheep in my ears? What is the lowing of cattle that I hear? Saul answered, the soldiers brought them from the Amalekites. They spared the best of the sheep and cattle, the sacrifice to the Lord your God. But we totally destroyed the rest. Stop, Samuel said to Saul. Let me tell you what the Lord said to me last night. Tell me, Saul replied. Samuel said, although you were once small in your own eyes, did you not become the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel, and he sent you on a mission saying, go and completely destroy those wicked people, the Amalekites. Make war on them until you have wiped them out. Why did you not obey the Lord? Why did you pounce on the plunder and do evil in the eyes of the Lord? But I did obey the Lord, Saul said. I went on the mission the Lord assigned me. I completely destroyed the Amalekites and brought back Agag, their king. The soldiers took sheep and cattle from the plunder, the best 
of what was devoted to God in order to sacrifice them to the Lord your God at Gilgal. But Samuel replied, Does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the voice of the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed is better than the fat of rams, for rebellion is like the sin of divination, and arrogance like the evil of idolatry, because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you as king. Then Saul said to Samuel, I've sinned. I've violated the Lord's command and your instructions. I was afraid of the people, so I gave in to them. Now I beg you, forgive my sin and come back with me so that I may worship the Lord. But Samuel said to him, I will not go back with you. You've rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you as king over Israel. As Samuel turned to leave, this is where it gets really dramatic. Saul caught hold of the hem of his robe and it tore. Samuel said to him, the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today and has given it to one of your neighbors, to one better than you. So this is an intense moment in the scriptures and something that we need to talk about, something I think that happens a lot of times in the American church is when there is violence in the Old Testament, we sort of walk by it like we didn't see somebody spill something on the ground. Have you ever like been in one of those moments? Like maybe you're in Hy-Vee and someone knocks some spaghetti sauce and you're like, like what was that? And we just sort of keep on walking. Sometimes I think when it comes to violence in the Old Testament, we're like, oh yeah, well that's just there, but Jesus. But we need to have a way to understand and think through and talk about why there is so much violence in the Old Testament that actually helps us understand the mission of Jesus and the life of Jesus, the the way of Jesus in more beautiful ways if we take time to talk about it a little bit. So we're not going to be able to do a ton of it today, but I want to highlight a few things. A few words on violence in the Old Testament. I'm just so glad you came to church today. We're talking about the violence of God. So number one thing I want you to know, what I want you to hear, is that biblical warfare is not about people going to fight in the name of God. It is about God going to fight on behalf of his people. So while it's tempting maybe for us to like, oh, we're going we're gonna to take ground for the kingdom. We're going to fight for God. God's like, no, like, I'm fighting for you. Like, I'm making a way for you. But if we miss that, what we do is we end up breaking one of the Ten Commandments. We like, that's taking God's name in vain, attaching it to places that it just does not belong. Have you ever been tagged in a social media post that you didn't want to be tagged in? We can do that with God. And when we do that, we're using his name in ways it was not intended to be used, taking the name of God in vain. So that's number one. Number two, Biblical warfare is both limited and it is not to be repeated. These wars were fought in a particular time in Israel. And they're not to be repeated nor justified 
by the church in any way, shape, or form. And you're saying, well, how do you know that? Now we get to talk about Jesus. Because Jesus comes on the scene and what does he do? Does he talk about taking over? Does he talk about ripping land from Rome? Does he talk about coming in power and control and with an iron fist? No, he comes in a stable and not on a horse, as on a foal of a donkey. Who's the last powerful king you saw that came and rode in on a donkey? It's like an adult trying to ride a tricycle. It's not exactly a scary scene. If we look at John 18, there's this moment where one of Jesus' followers, Peter, he's like got a lot of gusto. He, he fully believes everything that Jesus has taught. Just ask him and he'll tell you. And while Jesus is getting arrested in John chapter 18, Peter, and I don't know where Peter got this sword from, right? But he pulls out this sword and he cuts off the ear of this guy named Malchus. And you're like, well, who's Malchus? Malchus is the servant of the high priest. What's Peter doing? He's using violence to push forward the kingdom. But Jesus is like, no, 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 no. You've not been listening to me. You've not been listening to what I've been trying to tell you about. You've not been witnessing the miracles that I have been performing. I am seeking to bring a kingdom of peace and of wholeness. I'm trying to put together what was destroyed by sin. And what you're doing is you're using sin and violence and hatred to sow peace. And it won't work. You have to have the right puzzle pieces to put the puzzle together. You just can't pick random puzzle pieces from all different kinds of puzzles and try to put them together to make a picture. It's not going to work. It's bad math. So the way of Jesus, church, will always be a way of peace. The way of Jesus will always be a way of mercy. The way of Jesus will always be a way of love, and that is the force that is going to shape the world more than any violent act ever could. Because we hear of an evil one, and what has he come to do? He's come to steal. That's a violent act. He has come to what? Kill. That's a violent act. He's come to destroy. That's a violent act. What has God come to do? He's come to bring life, and life abundantly. And he is that life in of himself. So the biblical warfare is limited and not to be repeated. Biblical warfare is commanded by a merciful God. At the center of his character, the center of his nature, God is mercy. But in his mercy, he does not allow what I like to call like creation dismantling sin to go unchecked forever. Like he's going to respond to it. He's going to have a word to speak against it. Because he made the world and he cares very much about people who are seeking to dismantle it. And he's just not going to put up with his creation being dismantled. So I want to ask you how you would feel 
having built a sandcastle as a child on a beach, if someone would just like come up and knock it down. I want to ask you how you would feel having planted your raised flower beds in your backyard, raised so it doesn't hurt your back when you're doing it, right? That's why we do it. And someone just destroyed those. How I just want to ask you how you would feel having finished remodeling in your home and someone comes in and dismantles what you have created, would you have a word to speak against them? Biblical warfare, number four. And then we can get to the story, okay? Biblical warfare, it's not ethnic cleansing nor genocide. But it is the elimination of false worship. And so... In the scriptures, when we see violence, when we see warfare, this is not God getting rid of a people group. What God, God wants to do, God wants to gather the nations at his throne. That every tribe and tongue and people from all of the corners of the earth, he's not seeking to wipe them out or to make everyone the same. He wants to gather all of the nations at his throne that with one voice and in many languages they would say together, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, the one who was and who is and is to come. That's where we're going. That's where this thing ends. But God will remove all false gods. And the means of that removal is often intense. So the false gods that we bow down to, God will remove those, and it will be painful. It's probably not going to be a walk in the park. It's not going to be a picnic. It's not going to be unlimited token day at the arcade. It's going to involve pain. And the violence of the Old Testament makes way for the way of Jesus, which is a way of peace and a way of putting together what humankind has sought to kill and steal and destroy. So Saul gets some instructions from God through Samuel, verse 2 and 3 of chapter 15. This is what the Lord Almighty says, I'll punish the Amalekites for what they did to Israel when they laid them as they came up from the Egypt. Now go attack the Amalekites and totally destroy everything that belongs to them. Do not spare them. Put to death men and women, children and infants, cattle and sheep, camels and donkeys. And if this is your first week at invitation, you're like, wow, what a passage to pick. These are the instructions. Conquer the Amalekites and destroy everything. But here's what Saul actually does in verse 7. Saul attacked the Amalekites all the way from Havilah to Shur, to the east of Egypt. He took Agag, king of the Amalekites, alive, and all of his people he totally destroyed with a sword. But Saul and the army spared Agag and the best of his sheep and cattle, the fat calves, the lambs, everyone willing to willing everyone, let's see, sorry, everything that was good. These they were unwilling to destroy completely, but everything that was, des- that was despised and weak, they totally destroyed. So Saul destroys what is weak, and he 
brings back what he thought to be good. Two things. King Agog, king of the Amalekites, and some animals. So he brings back the king of the Amalekites, and he brings essentially like a petting zoo, a bunch of animals, right, along with this king. And you might be thinking, like, man, like, that is really intense. I want to help you understand a little bit of context to this. Deuteronomy 25, verse 17. Remember what the Amalekites did to you along the way when you came out of Egypt. When you were weary and worn out, they met you on your journey and cut off all who were lagging behind. And they had no fear of God. These were horrible people. These were violent people. So when the Israelites, they're coming out of Egypt. And what do the Amalekites do? They attack the Israelites. But who do they attack? Do you notice this? Do they attack the people in the front? Who do they attack? They attack them from behind. The people in the back. And so I just have a question as I was reading this text this week. I'm like, who do you think is in the back? Who's in the back of the line? It's the old, it's the young, it's the vulnerable. And God wants to say, that is not my way. And I'm going to respond when that happens. Because actually, I am on the side of the broken. I'm on the side of the oppressed. I'm on the side of the weary. I'm on the side of the vulnerable. So much so that anytime anyone embraces someone who is poor, someone who is broken, someone who is cast aside, every time someone would do that, every time someone would, would walk to the back of the line and stand with the people there, you are embracing Christ. You're standing with Christ when you're standing with them. Because that's where he is. And we have to be careful that the people who are in the back of all of the lines of the world don't get pushed aside and forgotten about and attacked and no one says anything about it. It's just normal. It's just how things work. And then verse 11, we hear that God regrets making Saul king. And you're like, hold on. Can God regret something? Like, I thought, I thought he was really, like, all-powerful. So if you're all-powerful, can you regret? Like, if you make all things happen, if you brought everything into being, can you regret something? It's this Hebrew word, nakam. And it means feeling the pain of circumstances but being fully aware of the future at the same time. So he regrets that Saul was made king. And then in verse 13, Saul explains away his disobedience. In verse 15, did you catch what he does? He steals a page out of the book of Genesis. Uh, the soldiers did it. Well, yeah, 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 but I know I did obey. But the soldiers, though, soldiers did. Like, they brought back the king. I mean, I was directing them, but, like, soldiers. You should talk to the soldiers. This is what Saul does. Explains away his disobedience. And then in verse 17, 
Samuel, think about this scene. Like, he's this old man with still a lot of life in his bones. Because he puts the king of Israel on blast. Verse 21 verse 20, but I did obey the Lord, Saul said. I went on the mission of the Lord assigned me. I completely destroyed the Amalekites and brought back Agag, their king. The soldiers took sheep and cattle from the plunder, the best of what was devoted to God, in order to sacrifice them to the Lord your God at Gilgal. Like, the soldiers did it, but the soldiers did it for a good reason. Because we're going to give it back to you. And when you have a disobedient heart, when your heart has not been given to God, what happens is you find all sorts of loopholes, all sorts of things that you can blame as to why you're not obeying when you've simply just not decided for your heart to belong to God. And the punchline comes in verse 22. Does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the voice of the Lord? So does God want this or does God want that? Does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Like, does God want church attendance Or does he want us to care for our neighbor? Like, does God want your money? Or does God want you to stand up for the people who are in the back of the line, for the oppressed? Does God want you to read your Bible every day for 40 minutes? And if you do that, you have to post it on the internet, otherwise it doesn't count. Or does he want you to lay down your pride and take up a posture of service? And a church attendance is not bad. I love this place. I love it so much. I got here at 545 just because I love it. But we can't love the gathering more than we love caring for our neighbors. And I want to use the the finances of this church and my own personal finances, not to build our own kingdom, but to push forward the kingdom that Jesus has sought to bring in and through us. And it's a way to stand up for the oppressed. And I love reading the scriptures. My student loans will tell you all about how much I love it. Seven years. And tens of thousands of dollars later. But we just can't love it more than laying down our own pride and taking up a posture of service. Like how much does it take for us to in the, in the way, in the manner, in the nature of Jesus in the last hours of his life and he just like bends a knee in front of his disciples and he's just washing their feet. He wraps a towel around his waist, the king of the universe. This is what he does. So does God want this or does God want that? Does God want an externally impressive church? People are like, oh man, you hear what they did? That thing that they did is sweet. Or does he want a teachable people? 
Does God want people who are sure of themselves? Confident in their own strength, their own ability? Or does God want people who are certain of Him? Does God want this or does God want that? Samuel's to King Saul. Does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the voice of the Lord? There's this poet that I really like, W.H. Auden. And he says this, and this is challenging. I'm not telling you this because you need it. I'm telling you this because I need it. We would rather be ruined than changed. We would rather die in our dread than climb the cross of the moment and let our illusions die. We would rather be ruined than changed. Like we would be okay with things just staying the same. We don't want to be changed. We don't want someone else to change us. We will change us. We will get a haircut. We're excited about that. Excited about new phone, planting some new flowers, doing some new things, spicing things up. You know, sometimes you seem to like spice up the living room a little bit, get some new pillows, just like do some new stuff. We're okay with change, we're not okay with being changed. And in this moment, Samuel wants, through the power of the Spirit, for Saul to be changed. Like, don't. Talk to me about your burnt offerings. Talk to me about your sacrifice. Burnt offerings are what you can do with your hand. Sacrifices are what take place through your heart. And I just believe if we don't first commit to a rhythm of obedience where God has our heart, then all of the burnt offerings then, they're not for God. They're for people. Like all of the burnt offerings that we offer in our life, they're not for God. They're for people. Because why, why would Samuel say this? Does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the voice of the Lord? No, obeying the voice of the Lord, watch this, is the burnt offering. That's the thing that God desires. So I don't need a resume of all of the stuff that you've done and all of the, all of the things that you have done that are impressive so that people would see them. What does Jesus say? And that nobody lights a lamp and puts it under a bowl. No, but you, you put it so that the whole house is given light. And so that all of the good deeds that people witness. Go, well, check out that burnt offering. That was great. No, but they're led to worship, Jesus will say. So when there is righteousness, when there is sacrifice, when there is obedience, what happens is God's the person that gets the glory. Not King Saul, not Samuel, not Dave, not Carl, nobody. I don't think we have a Carl here today. That's why I said that. But God, 
that people would see your good deeds in what? Praise your Father who's in heaven. Not, you would stop doing good deeds for people and just worship me. No, keep going with the good deeds. Keep going with the burnt offerings. But remember, the burnt offerings aren't not for people, they're for me. And then verse 26, Samuel says, you've rejected the word of the Lord and the Lord has rejected you as king over Israel. And then verse 27 and 8, there's this really dramatic moment that Saul grabs for Samuel's coat and it rips. And Samuel will say in the same way that my coat has just ripped, the nation of Israel is being ripped away from you. I'm going to invite the band up as we close this morning. And I think the end of this story, this disobedient heart of Saul that we see, there's this exposure of disobedience. That the choices that Saul has made, the things that he has done, they're getting exposed in this moment. And any time there is an exposure of disobedience, there is a choice. And it's either a choice in the first place for self-deception, to be like, oh, no, the soldiers did it. Oh, no, I was bringing the animals because we're going to have a worship party to you. Like, oh, it's not that big of a deal. It's unfolding everywhere around me. Like the ends justify the means. We talk a lot of time in the church about, the, about Satan being the deceiver. And I think a lot of times we are our own deceiver. That we live with self-deception. And so we just allow things to hang around far too long. And so when disobedience is exposed, we can live in that self-deception if we want to. But there's another option. There's another door, praise Jesus. And it's the door of repentance. And repentance in the scriptures is not saying I'm sorry. Repentance in the scriptures is what? It's change. It's turning around. A turning of heart. And I would also add like a, a turning of feet. Yeah, like I'm not going to live in that way. And my hands are going to no longer do that thing. So like in our house, sometimes we need to have a forgiveness meeting. I don't know about your house, but sometimes we need to do that. And in our house, we don't say sorry. We don't say sorry. We ask for forgiveness and so the way we've talked about it with our kids is this I'm sorry that I I was wrong because will you forgive me next time I will will you forgive me for stealing your toy dad that was wrong because that was yours Next time I will ask. It's not just feeling it, but it's changing what we're doing. And 
in the New Testament, we're very tempted to think of self-deception and repentance as individual things. Like, I need to repent. But in the Old Testament, it's very communal. And so, I guess a question that I have today at the very end of all of this is, like, what are some ways we as people have deceived ourselves when disobedience has come to the surface? What would it look like for us to repent as a people? Not simply these isolated individuals. What would it look for us, like for us to, to sacrifice as a people? To obey as a people? That's what this book is trying to help us with. Like we belong to each other. So we belong to the people who are at the end of the line, the back of the line. We belong to the people who are at the front, people who have a voice and people who don't. And my heart, my desire, my hope, my conviction, with everything that I have set before all of us today is that this place would be a place when disobedience is pushed to the surface, that we wouldn't embrace self-deception, but we would embrace repentance. Saul is done being king and there's another king, that's David and he's going to get anointed and spoiler alert he's going to disobey too but how he responds to his own obedience is different than Saul and in that way God says he's a man after my own heart not that he's perfect not that he never made mistakes but when David realizes he's dismantling what I have made, he bends his knee before me and he says, this was wrong. Will you forgive me? Next time, I will. Will you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we thank you today for the goodness and power of your grace. For this story in the scriptures that has some hard truths in it. We pray that we would walk away from self-deception and we would walk toward repentance, both as individuals and as a people. Because there are things that we have done as a people that have dismantled your creation. And it is your heart, your desire, your spirit that is seeking to repair all of those things. So God, would you give us some opportunities as we exit this place to come alongside those in the back of the line, to love and to serve them well, to embrace them as a way to, uh, to embrace you. And would you help us break ties with our addiction to simply giving to you burnt offerings? what you're asking for is sacrifice. Pray that we would offer these sacrifices not to people, but to you. And as we do that, as, as we lose something inside, some kind of control within us, some kind of category that we used to think within, that you would help us 
lean into a life that is just more beautiful than that. It's a life that includes others instead of a life seeking to isolate and destroy. God, thank you for King Saul. Thank you for what we learn from his story and how we see our story in his. And God, thank you for the grace in this Jesus who comes and lives and dies and is raised to life for every disobedient breath we've taken, every way that we have dismantled your creation that that's not as powerful as your words declaring over the whole earth it is finished and the words that come later from your followers he is risen and it is finished and he is risen are the words that make all the difference for us as we seek to be a people alongside of you repair and restore the creation that has been so grossly dismantled. We're committing ourselves to that work until the day of your return. In Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand? We're going to sing one more together.